But if that was not enough, there are many other global hotspots that might come to your mind, uh, such as maybe the tension that is currently uh, present between China and Taiwan, with Xi Jinping vowing that reunification is a matter of when, not if. And only last week, uh, Novak Djokovic brought to light uh, the ongoing tensions that exist between Serbia and Kosovo. I wasn't aware of that personally, what was going on there. Let alone the many other acts of violence that go unseen within our own country and things that occur even in our own local neighbourhoods. A few weeks ago in our series in Matthew, we spoke of, and it was spoken of, the capacity that human societies have to turn away from God and to cause devastating harm to others. Uh, We did this when we considered King Herod and his evil reign, where he came and ruthlessly killed children in Bethlehem, perceiving uh, that the uh, the child Jesus was a threat to his throne, a man who would kill basically anyone, even members of his own family who he perceived were a threat to him. But there is another type of conflict occurring in our world today, one that Matthew does want us to be aware of, a war that has been going on for longer than any other human conflict, a war that has caused more damage, and a war that has taken more casualties than any other. In our passage today, Matthew peels back the layers, if you might say it that way, to reveal the true reality of this war, showing us its true ugly nature, being a war not fought against flesh nor blood, but being a spiritual war that has a spiritual battlefront against spiritual forces of evil in high places, according to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, a war that John Bunyan describes as a holy war. That is, God's war against the devil and his kingdom of darkness. Uh, In our passage that we've just read, we see Jesus Christ, uh, God's Son, coming against the full force and wiles and temptations of the devil. Where we see the person of Jesus encountering, resisting, and overcoming the powers of darkness. And so as we explore Matthew 4 this morning, there are really two things that I want to be looking with you uh, this morning. Firstly, it's simply to understand the temptations that we face and the temptations of the evil one. If we are going to overcome the work of the devil in our own lives, we had better gain a fuller understanding of his strategies and devices. Secondly, in addition to that, we want to focus on the remedies that God's word provides to us to fight this battle. So firstly, the temptations, and then the remedies. And so first, then, let's focus then on gaining a greater understanding of the temptations that we face. And as we're going to do so, we're going to be looking basically at these three temptations that the devil tempts Jesus with and what we can learn from each of them. So for those who have been here the last few weeks, you will know that uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. 
He's just been anointed and commissioned by the Holy Spirit for his earthly mission. Jesus is now said to be led by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he was to face these temptations of the devil. Echoing the trials and tests of Israel that they faced in their wilderness experience for 40 years as recorded in the book of Numbers. Here, Jesus undergoes his own trials of faith for 40 days and 40 nights. The first temptation of the devil was one of tempting Jesus to use his powers for self-gratification, to prioritize, prioritize the temporal and the material over the spiritual. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, what Matthew says next must be one of the biggest understatements in Scripture. He was hungry. Hungry? You reckon, Matthew? Starving, more likely. Utterly famished. Uh, One source that I read uh, suggested that uh, people become weak uh, without food uh, within 30 to 50 days uh, and often die anywhere between 43 and 70 days. And so Jesus was probably not far from complete exhaustion here. And so the devil's first temptation certainly comes at an opportune time, kicking a man when he's down, as the saying goes, exploiting Jesus' bodily weakness for all it was worth. If you are the Son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, you can hear the mockery and disdain in the devil's voice. Jesus replies with a quote from Scripture, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice that the devil didn't tempt Jesus uh, with something that was bad here. We all need food. But he was tempting him to gain it by unwarranted means, by using his supernatural powers as also God in human flesh to simply do it for a selfish motive, and as well as having that wrong heart motive towards his heavenly Father when he was found to be without. Now, as far as I'm aware, you and I don't have the power to turn stones into bread, but the basic principle is transferable to us here. Uh, On the one hand, in our Western world today, uh, we are so geared towards the material rather than the spiritual. Such a great temptation we face to solely build on building a kingdom for us in the here and now and on selfish and instant gratification of earthly desires. Uh, and, and that's really to make, take something that is good and make it the greatest. Uh, I don't know about you, but I find practical examples helpful. So maybe for you this might mean turning off your Netflix sooner to spend a bit more time in word and prayer. Maybe it's giving up uh, some time in your week to serve others and to join in church community Now, otherwise, you might never do those kind of things. Or maybe it's fighting the temptation to view pornography, an act that takes something that is good and holy, like sex, and twists it 
for selfish gratification. Uh, in a me, me, me culture, the pull for selfish instant gratification is literally endless. But on the other hand, how easy is it for us, even as Christians, to grumble against God when we are lacking something that we feel we need, even if that thing in itself is not bad? It could be a hobby, good food, a good God-given job, or a nice home to live in. How easy is it for us, like those Israelites in the desert, to grumble against God in our hearts when we don't get the simplest things, like our morning coffee? In the second temptation, uh, the devil continues to be uh, really cunning, and here incredibly cunning, now turning to Scripture himself. But he does so in a way that twists and distorts the truth, drawing from it an incorrect application. He puts to Jesus the idea saying, come to the top of the temple, and if you just jump off the temple... God will rescue you and send his angels to come and save you. There he quotes from Psalm, I think it's Psalm 91. Uh, Yeah, Psalm 91. This suggestion gives the appearance of living by faith, the appearance of trusting God. But in actual fact, as Jesus replied, it would put God to the test. It would amount to attempting to control and manipulate God into some course of action. Rather than beginning from a place of trust and faith, it demands a miraculous sign from God as proof that God cares. And for Jesus, it meant finding glory outside of the road of suffering that he was to walk. If I think of our world today, the temptation to twist uh, Scripture for our own purposes, continues very much in our world today. The Bible addresses many topics that are challenging for our culture to accept, and we may be tempted to simply explain away. Whether it's the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics and standards, the reality of hell and God's judgment against sinners and sin, or God's exclusive uh, claim that Jesus, uh, excl- um, Jesus' exclusive claim to be the truth and that he is the only way to God and salvation. Uh, when you find something in Scripture that is hard to accept, how do you respond? Is it to reject it and attempt to explain it away? Or is it to fall on your knees and humbly ask God to help you understand and see things from his perspective. In the third temptation, the devil leads Jesus up to a high mountain where he just outright tempts him and says, Worship me. And in exchange, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and its glory. Now the gloves are well and truly off. Having first uh, tempted Jesus in more subtle ways, this third temptation is bold and blatant devilry. And how great the peril and danger uh, that prideful heart is in. The temptation to sin when we feel like we're on top of the world. When we feel strong and like we have it all together. 
Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If we think of these three temptations collectively, Satan's schemes are extensive. Perhaps we could think of uh, John's summary in John chap- uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That really is, summarizes what we're seeing today. Or in his book, uh, Fighting Satan, Knowing His Weaknesses, Strengths, and Defeat, uh, Joel Beakey suggests these three ways of describing the temptations here in Matthew 4, where Jesus is tempted by Satan uh, to indep- uh, interdependence, indulgence, and idolatry. In the devil, the church faces a formidable foe. He can outsmart you. He knows more than you. He has lived longer than you. His weapons are as sophisticated and relentless as they are cunning and evil. Working in both subtle and overt ways, prying on the proud and the weak in faith and exploiting our sinful passions and desires. Uh, In the Chinese classic uh, book called The Art of War, which was written in the 5th century BC uh, by the author Sun Tzu, Uh, He offers this following advice. So apparently this book was used by many military uh, nations and figures uh, over the years. And he offers this advice in war. He says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Now, if we take that advice, and if my sermon ended here, this would not be hopeful advice. For, for us to know our enemy is to know the devil is someone greater. And to know yourself is to know yourself being susceptible because of sin to his temptations. How then are we to overcome so great a foe? Well, Jesus, here in Matthew 4, gifts his church with two mighty remedies. The first remedy is this. Jesus gives to his people himself. After each temptation, Jesus resists and does not give in to sin. And actually, because he didn't give in, his felt force, theologians will say, that he felt temptation more than any of us because he never gave in. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, and unlike all humanity, Jesus came as the better Adam, the better Israel. Not only was he born sinless without original sin, unlike you and I, but he also went on to live a perfect human life, something he can only achieve as the Son of God in human flesh. As a human, the temptations Jesus faced were real temptations. As Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet as the person of Christ, being both human and divine, he 
could not be conquered or overcome by sin. All this means that the devil's temptations achieved the exact opposite. They better prepared Jesus for his earthly ministry. Like a heavy-handed drill sergeant who schools his pupils, the trials Jesus underwent only further proved his mettle, an unrelenting love and devotion to his heavenly Father. Love and devotion that came to a climax on the cross. Indeed, Jesus would show himself glorious and a king from on high. But this glory did not come through taking the easy way out. But it was glory achieved through suffering, even death on a cross. This is good news for the Christian because having ascended to heaven after his resurrection, Jesus poured out his spirit upon his people to help us conquer the power of sin and the work of the devil in our own lives. This is why it is so urgent and so precious to actually be a Christian and why it is so deadly to not be a Christian. For without Christ in you, the devil has full reign. If you are here not yet to commit your life to Jesus, spiritually speaking, you are like a dead corpse roaming the streets. That might seem like pretty striking language, but that's kind of the language Scripture itself uses. Let's see Ephesians 2, for example. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, never mind the talk of the next zombie apocalypse. Spiritually speaking, it's kind of already here. For any who don't follow Jesus, they are spiritually dead. And so I ask you this morning, do you know the freedom from this power of sin and of devil in your life? Have you committed your life to Christ? According to the gospel, the way of salvation and renewed spiritual life is simple. In Romans 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Freedom from the clutches of the devil is simply turning to Jesus in faith, acknowledging your sinfulness and your need for Jesus to rescue you. For all Christians, this fight continues. Maybe you are here today and you are burdened by the fight of faith, finding it so difficult to stay on track. Sometimes the fight can seem to overwhelm us and we feel like giving up. Maybe you are here and kind of have given up, thinking that it's pointless to keep trying to resist temptation. For the struggling Christian, there really is hope for you. When we're down in the trenches and the spiritual battle is raging around us and in us, when the war against the powers of darkness seem to have no end in sight, know that Christ really has already won the victory. I liken it to what happened in World War II. Uh, the beginning of the end for Germany, really, uh, they say, is you think of D-Day on 6th of June, 1944. 
But it wasn't until almost a year later on V-Day or Victory Day in 1945 on May the 8th that Germany finally offered their unconditional surrender. For the Christian on the cross of Christ, that was D-Day. It's already happened. Christ has won the victory. We now await as his people V-Day when Christ returns and all things are made right. While we wait and continue the battle, God in his word reminds us not to fight this battle in our own strength, but to, in faith, look to Jesus who overcomes the devil. Furthermore, the Christian ought to take note of the second remedy that God gives us here. Not only does Jesus give us himself and his own life, but he also gives us his powerful word. Uh, In our text, Jesus models for us what it is like to use the Holy Scriptures in this holy war. Like yielding a powerful weapon that neutralizes the enemy's attack. Uh, Paul calls it in Ephesians 6, 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. After each of these three temptations, Jesus responds with Scripture against Satan, in this way defeating the onslaught. For you and I to use this remedy effective, one must become familiar with it, like a well-used tool in the tool shed, or that precious cooking utensil that you've become so accustomed to and skilled at using in the kitchen. Do you know and love your scriptures? Or is your Bible more like a Christmas tree that collects dust throughout the year and only comes out on special occasions. Growing in the knowledge of the Scriptures is not a nice-to-have for the Christian life. It's a central part of the recipe for the healthy, wholesome life lived for God. The Bible is a precious gift in the hands of believers, reminding us of the promises of God reminding us of the deceitfulness of sin, helping us fend off the devil. The lazy Christian is a sitting duck just waiting to be shot at. And so, Christian, use these remedies. The state of your soul and the souls around you, count count on it. Keep up the good fight. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look to Jesus who has won the victory. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this passage, Lord, that uh, in it and in your word, you really do open up uh, some deep, profound spiritual truths for us today. Father, we live in a world that, on the one hand, often does not acknowledge uh, there to be any spiritual world, that there is no God, that there is no demons, there are no Satan uh, or or angels, Lord. But Father, your word is clear. Uh, You are are the king of the universe. You are our creator. We only exist because of you. And Father, ever since Genesis 3, uh, evil has entered this world. And the spiritual battle has been raging ever since. Father, we thank you that on the cross... You defeated the powers of darkness. 
that you overcome Satan's sin in the world and even death, Lord. Father, we look to you this day. We ask, Lord, that particularly for those who are struggling with sin at the moment, that you would help them in their moments of struggles, that you'd strengthen them by your word and helping them look to Jesus. Father, we pray also for uh, against proud hearts, Lord, that we might not be puffed up and susceptible uh, to sin, Lord. Help us to remain humble before you, always looking to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.